Hi, I'm Alexia Jacques Casanova, and you are listening to Do It Different, a podcast by Communicating the Arts in which I talk to artists and leaders from the cultural sector about their professional trajectories, their most successful failures, and what they've learned from those, so you can too learn from their experiences. My guest today spoke at Communicating the Arts in 2018 in Brussels. If you were there, you certainly remember her inviting all of us to lie down on the European Parliament floor, which we did. This invitation, or provocation even, was an opportunity for many of us to consider new and inclusive ways to experiment arts and conversation. When I interviewed her, She said something a lot of us feel but don't express out loud. She said, culture can be an exhaustive experience. I'm sure you've heard of museum fatigue. You've probably even experienced it yourself. But if culture is so exhausting for the people it's been designed for and around, can you imagine what it's like for all the other people? All the individuals whose special needs, specificities and different abilities were not considered when those spaces and experiences were designed. With my guest today, we talk about the power of lying down and the importance of making ways for people to linger with art. Without further ado, I will let her introduce herself. So my name is Raquel Messager and I am the artistic director of a company called Uncharted Collective. How I got to do what I'm doing now is was quite a long road. So I trained as a contemporary dancer in the early 2000s at, at um, London Contemporary Dance School. I was really lucky to work with some amazing contemporary dance theatre companies and I co-founded a theatre company called Lost Dog that is still going strong. But in 20, 2007, I had an injury that became chronic pain. and after after surgery and after a lot of um, time to rehabilitate, I um, I I tried to go on working in the industry, but I was kind of heartbroken at that stage. And so, yeah, it was um, it was a, a, a it was so difficult to accept the the difference between what I'd been able to do and what I was then able to do after after the injury. And so, in 2011, I stepped away from the world of theatre and. To be really honest, it, it took a long time. I, I'd say I had about six, seven years in, in the wilderness or in uncharted territory where I was trying to figure out how to live a good life in the midst of chronic pain. Mm. And not, not just professionally, I assume, just in general. No, just in general. I, at that time, I was making work. I was um, sort of trying out other jobs and other other ways of being in the world. Um, uh, but at one point, point during that time in the wilderness my world got incredibly small like I I uh I wasn't going I wasn't uh, going out I wasn't visiting family I wasn't I didn't have art or theatre in my life and the only way that that started to get bigger again was when I decided that um I was just going to do what I need to do to be out in the world so I started lying down in public I started lying down on on trains so that I could go and visit family. I started lying down in galleries so that I could uh, travel into town and see the exhibition and lie down and rest there and then come home, things like that. 
So at this point, Raquel starts circling back to the art world and considers making new work. She has very personal questions about the lived experience of chronic pain that she wants to explore with an audience. This is how her first piece came to be. A piece inspired by a very close member of her family with whom conversations about her chronic pain were impossible to have. The first uh, piece I made was called uh, Someone Should Start Laughing. And that happened because I wanted to have a really frank conversation with my dad about what it was like to live with chronic pain. I felt like it had been the elephant in the room for quite a long time. I asked him if he would just go to the pub with me just once and we could drink whiskey and we could just have a really frank conversation. And he said, he said, no, he said, I'm really sorry, but... Um, I don't think it's a good idea. And so it got me thinking. And why? Why Why was that not a good idea? <laughs> yeah, good question. I think he said, when I've asked him since, because since then we have had that conversation, but at the time he, he felt like I was in quite a difficult place and that it couldn't see how it would do me any good. I think at that time they were quite quite worried about how I was managing this new life. I think what they found so difficult about it, because at one point my financial situation became that I did have, I had to move home for a couple of years. And I, um, I think it was very difficult to, to witness me going through that and not be able to do anything. Um, but I was surprised because my dad is like liberal to a fault almost. So if he and I weren't able to have that conversation, I wondered who was having that conversation and then realised quite quickly that people weren't, that it was such a taboo subject, that people weren't talking about it. And a lot of people who, who live with those experiences feel very silenced or like they can't, they can't talk about it because, um, because the nature of a chronic illness in, in that it, it is over such a long time. It's not like other illnesses that have this arc of recovery, potentially. It's over such a long time and the feeling that um, they're saying the same thing over again and, and friends and family won't potentially won't, won't want to hear it. So the, the first piece that we made, the idea was to craft these um, performative conversations between 10 people who live with chronic pain or another invisible disability. And when I say performers, I mean ordinary folk who are just uh, who just wanted to talk very frankly about their experience and an audience member. That was the first piece that I came back to, to and tried to make. So this first piece, Someone Should Start Laughing, it brings Raquel back into the thick of the creation process. She founds the Uncharted Collective and settles to, and I quote, curate resting spaces and experiences in which she asks the audience to behave non-normatively and have an active role in spectatorship. For instance, for her current project called Crash Course in Cloud Spotting, she asks the audience to lie down to listen to stories she's collected. Those stories, there are over 300 of them, have been collected from people who live with a hidden disability or are neurodivergent and need to rest throughout the day. Here's the interesting origin story behind this project. A crash course in cloud spotting is all about this provocation of lying down in public and it it came into being because in 2016, I triggered a security alert by lying down at a, a, a very well-known um, art centre in London on the South Bank. And 
I felt like I had to do something creatively in response to that. So a crash course in cloud spotting is a, a kind of a provocation um, to ask us to question the etiquette of our public spaces and why uh, a, a behaviour that is, is not that strange, like lying down is not that strange a thing to be doing in public, but why it is policed and judged and um, and, and people are just uh, made to, to not, do the things they need to do if they were out in the world. And when I first started that project, I, I really wasn't sure if it was just me. And then after after doing like an online survey and chan- um, BBC Forethought helped us by like, do, um, I recorded a talk for them. I've, we've collected nearly 300 stories now about people's attempts to rest in public and stories from all over the world. So it's not it's not just a kind of isolated experience or it's not just the experience of sort of a few of us. It's It really is a collective experience that I feel like needs to be heard. Mm-hmm. And um, so what, what have you learned from, you know, uh, that project? I've learned that the etiquette of our public spaces is quite strict uh, in lots of cultures. So it's not just kind of British culture. I think I've learned that people write very eloquently and frankly about their experiences when they're given the space to and they I think they do that really skillfully in avoiding the the binary of uh, disability or illness as tragic or heroic um, uh, so I think the, the stories we've gathered have a, a particular tone that I think is is really important um in terms of what what might be useful to to my peers I so we 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 asked people to, to we asked people to lie down to listen to these stories, and that was um, both to to create spaces where people can rest in public, but also to ask the audience to lie down to create a kind of mirroring act as they listen to these stories. But I think what we found is that there's a lot of potential in that format of asking your audience to lie down, because in lying down we have a very different sense of self a different sense of time and imagination and um, I feel quite excited about it as a potential format not just for this piece but for other pieces it feels like there's a real potential there for a a different and very intimate kind of storytelling I've started to call it a kind of a different embodied spectatorship Mm. because we it's also sorry. It's also almost about permission for because um, I remember it was in Brussels at the communicating at the the arts in Brussels. Mm-hmm. Um, I I was visiting one of the exhibition and it was before your talk, so mm-hmm. I hadn't met you. I didn't know who you were, and I remember walking in the exhibition and I saw uh, a person lying on the floor. Uh, that was you. <laughs> And uh, I remember stopping for a second and really thinking. I was I was kind of torn because I was like, "Wait, we're not we're not allowed to do this." And at the same time, I was so jealous because I mean, I don't I don't need to lie down because I'm you know lucky not to have any chronic pain. But I I I'm usually very uncomfortable uh, in galleries where I want to spend time because other. Either I'm, you know, standing and, you know, standing for hours is is uh, hard for everybody, 
Or I, I sit and my butt hurts because those benches are always so uncomfortable. Or I sit and I feel guilty because I think that someone else will need to sit, you know, someone who's older than me or, or children. Mm. And I remember feeling uh, kind of jealous of uh, the, I mean, I want to say freedom, but I, I don't want to be insensitive to the fact that you, you have no other choice that, than to, to lie down. But it, it definitely felt to me like, why, why aren't we all lying down to watch art and to enjoy art and to take the time to really take it in? Um, uh, yeah, I totally agree. And I, I, don't, I don't find that in, insensitive. It, in some ways, it is a freedom. And I, it was kind of a provocation that I put to everyone at communicating the museum that the way our museums and galleries are designed, we're not really encouraged to linger and to be with the art. There's a kind of there's a kind of rhythm that we've gotten used to that you go and stand in front of a, a painting for what a couple of minutes and then you move on. And in my experience, where I've taken the time to lie down and just be with the painting, it's stayed with me in a completely different way. And I remember that painting in Brussels much clearer than I remember anything else in that exhibition. The place where I chose to pause because it was a choice. You know, some ways I'm kind of really curating my own experience there. I chose to pause with that piece, and I I was there for a good kind of twenty minutes of having a, a, a beautiful experience of coming in and out of it and really exploring the detail of that piece of work. So I I think it's a different way to spectate, and I think it should be. It, um, it could be that we build. Our, our galleries and our theatres and our museums in a way that we encourage that kind of spectatorship. Yeah. Um, what would you say was your biggest challenge when you created the Uncharted Collective? Um, I think the biggest barrier initially was uh, believing in myself again and in, and in the, the worth of stories about disabled experiences and different bodies misbehaving bodies is a phrase that I quite like um to use and um, and then it took time to to build relationships with venues again and convince them to support a project with with a kind of a different format and a project that was me and not part of Lost Dog which is the the company that I uh, co-founded um but also as an independent artist you need loads of strings to your bow so as well as making the art, there's 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 lots of other skills you need to be able to to fundraise and and manage teams and do marketing and and all sorts of stuff. And I found I did find it difficult to build up the experience and the capacity to do those things as well as deliver the art side of the projects. Um, I, I, yeah, I think those were the most difficult things for me. So at the moment of my interview with Raquel, we were in the thick of the COVID-19 crisis, doing social isolation with everybody staying at home. And so during this time that we've all spent uh, sometimes reflecting, uh, sometimes envisioning a different future, I asked her about the changes that she would like to see, implement or witness around her here's what she had to say i am um, i kind of worry that i worry both that things won't go back to how they were or that or that but i also worry that we don't use this opportunity to create a fairer society but um but sorry to answer your question what what has really struck me i think in this time is how much our culture values 
the new and um, and how we don't often or I don't often take the time to look back and consider and reflect, reflect on what I've done. I'm, I'm so guilty of feeling like I need to deliver them something new and innovate. And so during this time, I feel like there's been a lot of um, suggestions or pressure to suddenly put your work online and suddenly make your work um, accept, accessible in a digital format. And I, I've really resisted that and been taking the time to look back at the work I've done and all the research I've done over the last couple of years. And I think that's really, really valuable. It's kind of, for me, it's a, it's a great time to take stock and look at what I've been doing and what I'm going to be doing in the future and, um, and kind of living and breathing some of this research rather than uh, just talking about it or facilitating it for other people. Um, so I think I, I will definitely from this, like, carve out time for for reflection and I've started a I've started a, a scrapbook um yeah yeah of all the of all the different because I've I've been so lucky over the last couple of years to be invited to lots of different talks and and sometimes you do a talk and then you I just forget about it but it's really great to go back to all that material and see what are the things that have really stayed throughout that time or what were like little ideas that i kind of mentioned and then forgot about so I think I, I'll definitely keep up that way of documenting my work um, but also um, I've, I've been taking like an hour one hour every Wednesday as part of this group where it's 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 like a lead um, hermit practice it's called hermit practice and that that's been a really beautiful time and I think even when things get busy again because I imagine they will get really busy again when they get busy to, to have that at least that hour a week to to really come back to to like the the, the real essence of, of my practice and of what I want to do. The Hermit Practice Raquel mentions here is a project initiated by Tessa Wills a few years ago. In response to COVID-19, Theatre Bristol decided to run the Hermit Project under a new format and launched weekly one-hour session on Zoom all led by Tessa Wills. If you're interested in knowing more, there's a Hermit Project hashtag on Instagram. I would love to know mm. about your most successful failure. And by that, I mean the one from which you've learned the most. Mm. And that failure can either be personal or professional. Uh, so yeah, what is it? Tell us. Yeah, the... Um yeah, for me, it's 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 quite it's interesting to 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 say it out loud like this, but the the most successful failure has been becoming injured and then becoming disabled and identifying as disabled. That is definitely what I've learnt the most from. Um, at the beginning of of a crash course in cloud spotting, this is what I say to the audience. I say that for me, it was the difference between one moment and another, between before and after, like a line drawn in sand. One moment there was no pain and then there was pain. And just like that, everything changed. In my before, when I was well, I didn't see people who were ill or disabled. I just didn't see them. They weren't an everyday part of my world. Now I'm on the other side of that line. I see them. I see them and the spaces they occupy and I collect those stories. And the journey I've been on means that I've, I feel really alive to disability art and discourses and the work I see by disabled artists or crip or neurodiverse artists is definitely the most radical and interesting work I see. It's just 
it feels so alive and so relevant and necessary. Um, I was I was thinking, I've also never said this out loud, I don't think, that um, in response to your question, that if, like, if they made a pill that would cure me of my chronic pain, I wouldn't necessarily jump at it. Hmm, why not? Because because my it's my embodied experience it's that kind of that persistent pain all the time that keeps me alive and open to the experiences of other misbehaving bodies and other stories that don't get told and it's what keeps me alive to to new ways of working and to wanting to create i don't want to live in pain but i'm also not done with this inquiry yet like I, I can only explore, explore it with integrity because I live it. And I think it's the living it that 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 is the stimulus to wanting to, to create change and wanting to explore different ways of viewing art and different ways of making art and different ways of thinking about our audiences and, and what stories we tell. The fights that we choose or the efforts that we make are often immediately correlated with our own experience. For instance, people who've lost a relative or a friend in a car accident have more chances of becoming strong advocates for enforced laws against drunk driving. I'm one of those people, and I know that my commitment comes from the pain I've experienced from this loss. I feel like it might be the same with museums and cultural institutions at large. There often needs to be a staff member who is directly impacted by chronic pain, disability or any other matter of inclusion and accessibility for the institution to actively work on that subject. And often, when that person leaves, when she leaves the institution, the projects she had carried and encouraged, they slowly die out. So I ask Raquel what, in her opinion, could help cultural institutions be more empathetic to people with chronic pain or disability, even when none of the institution staff members are directly impacted by it. Here's what she had to say. I think probably change comes slowly and maybe it kind of opens up from little pockets. So where I live in Bristol, I, I've worked with the local independent cinema to create horizontal cinema. So now you can lie down to see any show at Watershed. Um, you just go ahead and say, I want to participate in horizontal cinema and they will put out like a yoga mat and cushions or a beanbag for you. And there's a theatre, uh, like a local theatre where I can do the same. I can call and say, I'm coming and, they, and they'll and um, they put some cushions and, and some other things out for me. And it makes a huge difference for me. It's the difference between enduring the performance and enjoying it like really being a being comfortable and being able to enjoy it and feeling welcome like it makes me feel incredibly welcome and it makes me feel like Bristol's my hometown because I have those relationships with those um yeah with those art, art organizations who are willing to do that and I think like slowly slowly we kind of build a case for it if it's possible here in Bristol then it's definitely possible in other places can you tell us a bit about what your typical day or week looks like? And, and when I say typical, I mean outside of uh, the current sanitary crisis. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, myself and quite a few other disabled co colleagues and artists have been sort of commenting that actually my life doesn't look that different to lockdown. Um, 
I, unless I'm in a studio doing R&D or creation, then I work a lot from home because I can like, I can work from bed. I can lie down on the sofa. I've got, um, yeah, lots of ways to be able to lie down and, and work. So I do a lot of, I do a lot of planning and researching and thinking and writing. Um, I spend a lot of time resting. Like I have to rest several times throughout the day. But increasingly, it's a place, it's a creative place where I kind of problem solve from. So uh, increasingly, if, if, if there's like a, a something that, that I need to fix or problem I need to solve within a piece that I'm making, more and more the answer comes when I'm kind of lying down reflecting on it rather than when I'm in doing mode. Um, so increasingly, like the horizontal and rest in, is rest is where I craft from, because it has a there's an aspect of distillation in rest for me. Like when when I lie down and I allow that different sense of self and time and space, then things resonate and come to the surface. And they're often things that I don't notice in doing mode. You know, there's not space for them when I'm in doom mode so I think I I make my best work like writing or thinking when I use both modes. As a conclusion to this conversation Raquel suggested four tips on how to create spaces for audiences to linger with art. Here they are. Number one, make some dream time to reimagine how people move through your exhibits. Number two, Extend an invitation to your audience to rest and do so on disabled communication channels too. Number three, designate a quiet space in your building and make sure people know where it is. Number four, embrace relaxed performance formats and horizontal spectatorship. Number five, make sure you have disabled representation on your boards and steering groups. If you wish to know more about the work of Raquel Messeguer, you can find her on unchartedcollective.com. This podcast is brought to you by Communicating the Arts, a global network of cultural leaders who gather three times a year in Europe, North America and the Pacific. You can tweet at us using the Do It Different hashtag or the Communicating the Arts hashtag. If you want to go further, we also craft and deliver high-quality online case studies called Best Practices for Cultural Leaders. Linda Butler from the Fine Arts Museum of San Francisco and Magnus Rostovter from the Royal Danish Theatre are just two of the great superstars we've gathered to lead those online learning sessions. So if you want to know more or register, go on communicatingthearts.com. This show is hosted and produced by me for Communicating the Arts. It is mixed and edited by Kevin Kelly, who also wrote and performed our theme song. If you like what you heard, subscribe on Spotify, Anchor, or wherever you listen to your podcast. And you can also rate our show so that more people can find and enjoy it. Thanks a lot for spending some time with us. We'll be back in two weeks for a brand new and exciting episode.